This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Bob's Photo Store in Birmingham. If we can't take care of your family, we'll send you to someone who can. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, a double feature. The late night double feature, show. 1988's Manhunter and 2002's Red Dragon, both based off the Hannibal Lecter novel Red Dragon by Thomas Harris. Kelsey is a big fan of those novels. Mm-hmm. I've read two of them. I think I read this one in Silence of the Lambs. Oh, I didn't know you read any of them. I had the audiobooks. Yeah, I didn't know you read them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. I might want to read this one again, though, because it's been a couple years now. Before we get into those, though, Kelsey, what do we do? Slash cards. Slash cards. You want to ask me the first question? Name two horror films. That take place in Italy. Um, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And now I'm thinking of Spain. Uh, Does Suspiria take place in Italy? I don't actually know. It probably does. The reason I asked it was because I wanted you to say Hannibal. Oh, right. Hannibal has takes place in Italy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which we're not going to get into here because it's an all right movie, but it's probably the Third worst of the of the uh, of the four of the four. I mean, of the five. Well, if you don't count Manhunter, of the, <laughs> of the four Hannibal Lecter movies that have Anthony Hopkins or are part of the Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins oeuvre. isn't in Hannibal Rising. He's not, but it's part of the series. Mm. Yeah. So, good question. Your question is, Kelsey. Name one horror movie in which someone's head explodes. Scanners. <laughs> Why did I ask that question, Kelsey? Because that part really upsets me. It really, really does. She feels so bad for the dude. The first time I saw it, I couldn't even focus on anything else. I was just like, why? Why is he killing this guy? He's a good guy. And he's on his side, which means that this guy has no real objective. Well, because the dude is nuts. And he's also power mad. And he wants to prove how powerful he is. Stupid. And he has no pity for anyone who is weaker than him. Don't like it. That person being Michael Ironsides, who blows up this dude's head with his mind uh, towards the beginning of Scanners. Makes me very sad. (laughs) He seems like such a nice guy. And as such, we'll probably never do Scanners. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Kelsey. Let's move on to 1988's Manhunter. Based on the book Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, but written and directed by Michael Mann. Kelsey, do you know anything about Michael Mann? I know I've heard the name before. Michael Mann is probably originally got famous because he produced Miami Vice, the original 80s 
cop detective vice cop <laughs> drama thing. Yeah. They're vice cops in Miami Vice. Did oh, you know that? I didn't. Famous for the leisure suits with the sleeves rolled up and all that <laughs> with T-shirts underneath. Uh, in any case, he is also very, very famous for um, this is probably the first big thing that he directed. But he also did just a few years later, Last of the Mohicans and Heat and The Insider and Ali and Collateral and the Miami Vice remake and Public Enemies and Black Hat. So he's done a lot of movies that you've heard of. Yes, he has. And this is probably his first really, really big one. It also uh, stars William Peterson, who most people probably know as that one guy from CSI. (laughs) Interestingly, uh, Lawrence Fishburne was also in CSI. (laughs) And and, uh, Lawrence Fishburne plays a character in... Is it called Hannibal? Yes. In the TV Hannibal show TV show. Hannibal. And yeah. it's awesome. He plays Jack Crawford. You should really, re- it, it's probably one of the most uh, underrated TV shows of the past 10 years. Like so nobody watched that show. And it's really good. Listen, if you like these movies, you should watch Hannibal. At least the first two seasons. Because fuck the third season. <sighs> Kelsey has opinions. <laughs> It also stars uh, Joan Allen and Brian Cox and Tom Noonan playing Francis Dollarhide, who is the one old guy from House of the Devil. And. And he's the bad guy in Last Action Hero, <laughs> which we talked about when we talked about House of the Devil, which is a good movie. You should listen to our episode on it. All right, Kelsey, you want, before we uh, discuss the movie proper, you want to tell us what the premise is? Will Graham is considered one of the best FBI profilers. FBI profilers of serial killers. And he's a retired cop, and they're bringing him back in to find the Tooth Fairy, a new serial killer who is killing off families every full moon mm-hmm. so there it, this is uh, this mission is time boxed there there is a point where he will kill again and they got like three weeks or so a little more than three weeks to solve this murder mm-hmm. so can this famous um FBI profiler who took down Hannibal Lecter take down the tooth fairy well you're gonna have to watch and find out and Kelsey should they watch this movie yes. I really like it. It's a little long and a little slow, but it's really good. Like if you, this is the way I describe it in my brain. If Blade Runner took place in the setting of Miami Vice, (laughs) the TV show, that's this movie, 100%. And we'll get into why in just a moment. So you should go watch the movie. And when we come back, we'll talk about 1988's Manhunter. Intruder entered through kitchen sliding door. Nationwide victims. Yeah, this is Will Graham of the FBI. One killer. Have you ever seen blood on the moonlight well? William, you're gonna make yourself sick or get yourself killed. Multiple trails. Just you and me now, sport. 
FBI agent Will Graham. Manhunter. Kelsey, what happens in Manhunter? So the movie begins with a flashlight, and we watch the flashlight make its way upstairs in a home, and it flashes in on a woman waking up, and it's pretty horrible. I can't imagine that. can't imagine waking up to that. Right, how creepy that is. They do a really good job of making that super creepy. Mm-hmm. Just like watching this couple, but specifically this woman as they sleep in bed, and then she wakes up and it cuts away. So then we get to meet... Will Graham, the amazing profiler, and he is meeting Jack Crawford, his old boss, and Crawford has shown up to try and convince Will Graham to come back and work with him because they're really worried that they're not going to catch this guy within the next month because, like Chris said, this is a time-boxed situation. They only have so much time. And he ends up convincing him by showing him pictures of the families because... Because when they're alive and happy. Yes, because Will Graham, in this in this movie, he... I mean, this and Red Dragon, it's different in the book. Uh, he is a family man, and he's like, oh, I can't imagine. There are implications in this movie that that's not his actual son. They don't outright say it, but I think when they talk about when they first met... The boy's older than that, and there's this lot, a lot of tension between him and the kid, as if he's trying to become this boy's father, but well, he's the, not actually the boy's The kid father. calls him dad. Right, right, right. As stepsons can do, and often do, not all the time, but they do do it. Um, and I think that's a signal of when their relationship reaches that point, because it happens after he has this, like, important talk with this boy. Anyway, I want to point out that it's really weird seeing William Peterson in this role because before CSI started, or at least before I was aware of CSI, uh, I want to say Showtime did a remake of 12 Angry Men. And 12 Angry Men, the original 12 Angry Men, is uh, one of my favorite movies. I'd probably put it in my top 10. Love that movie. And in the remake with Jack Lemon. And Tony Danza, <laughs> William Peterson plays, I think, juror number 11 or 12. He's one of, one of the last ones. He's the guy that's like the salesman, the ad guy or whatever. And so it's really weird to juxtapose this with that because <laughs> he has the great lines like, let's put it out on the porch and see if the cat licks it up. <laughs> Run it up the flagpole and see who salutes. You know, like he's that sort of smarmy salesman-y type kind of optimistic guy in this in this jury room at the ad agency when we reach a point like this in a meeting there's always some character ready with an idea and it kills me i mean it's the weirdest thing sometimes the way they uh proceed their idea with some little phrase you know like some account exec will go well here's an idea let's run it up the flagpole see if anyone sings the national anthem or uh here's an idea let's put it on the bus see if it gets off of wall street <laughs> i mean it's idiotic really but it's funny so it's really weird seeing him as this like hard-boiled emotionally wrecked FBI profiler. You son of a bitch. You son of a bitch. (laughs) Didn't you, you son of a bitch? You touched her with your bare hands. One thing I will give this and Red Dragon, they do great work with the source material. They they input a lot of the straight straight dialogue straight out of the book, and it's great. Yeah. Love it. So... He uh, he convinces him, and it's right around this time that we start to hear the score of the film. 
oh god, that synth. <laughs> oh my, I like legitimately. I love. I love the synth in this movie. It is so good. It is like fucking straight out of Blade Runner. It is the epitome of the 80s score. And it's awesome. It's really, really good. does the music? Hold on. The soundtrack is by a man named uh, Michel Rubini and a band called The Reds, who also contributed to the Nightmare on Elm Street 2 soundtrack (laughs) with uh, Terror in My Heart. They did the songs Lecter Cell and Leeds House uh, in this, but the rest is Michel. And it is so good. So good. So good. Uh, So we get to see the wife say, um, you know, I, I want you to stay. I know that's selfish of me. She's very much a bitch to Jack Crawford uh, because she blames Jack for putting her husband. Like in the line of fire, basically. Bringing him back. We should explain what happened between him and Hannah. We should. Yeah, because they don't really show it. They Well, they they don't show it in this movie. We'll get to see it in the next movie. Uh, because this is before Hannibal Lecter was a big thing. As a matter of fact, they spell his name differently in this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's L-E-C-K-T-O-R. And basically, Hannibal Lecter is a psychiatrist who is was consulting with the FBI and working with Will Graham. They have They have a history of taking down serial killers and one they're looking for throughout their time together is the Chesapeake Ripper. And that ends up being Hannibal Lecter, and Will Graham finds that out when he's with him, and they get into a struggle, and Lecter, well, they nearly kill each other, and Lecter goes to prison, and that's how Lecter's in prison for this series of movies. Mm -hmm. And so, after that, Will Graham retires, right? He he's he's no longer required. He's been nearly killed in the line of duty. Uh, and so he retires to this really gorgeous beachfront property with his wife and son. And they explain that it's not just that he was almost mortally wounded. It's also because it takes a big toll on his psyche. Yeah, him, him on him uh, emotionally, because what he does as a profiler is he's basically an empath, not like psychic, not like Deanna Troy from Star Trek The Next Generation is an empath. No, he's an empath in that he's extremely empathetic to the point where he can put his mind and emotions in the place of a serial killer and feel and think what they were feeling and thinking at that point. It's not magic. He just has that mental and emotional Ability. He can put himself in their place. And so as a result, he's forced to feel the things that they feel and think the things that they think. And it takes a lot to deal with that as a person who isn't a serial killer. Right. I mean, you've probably heard about actors that have 
gone off the deep end. Yeah, because they play roles that are evil and do horrific things. And it's it's difficult because you have to put yourself in that place or it's not going to be real. And that is, you know, that's what it takes to be a great actor. It's basically like the extreme version of that. Yeah, but it can can really fuck with a person because you're putting yourself – you're forcing yourself to think and think about things that you do not want to think about. Right. And as a profiler, he uses this ability to basically provide the FBI with insights about the perpetrator, what type of person they are, what their interests are, what they maybe do for a living, um, how tall they are. Did they wet the bed when they were a child? Like stuff like that. And how they choose their victims. Right. And, and which kind of which really goes a long way in identifying who the perpetrators are. So there's a lot of backstory on Will Graham. He's a very important character that you see in this story and then never again in the books, although they do mention him and we'll talk about it towards the end. So he has been conscripted by Jack Crawford, who is Dennis Farina in this, to look for this tooth fairy killer who has killed two families on a full moon. And the next one is in like three and a half weeks. And Jack doesn't think that they can do it with before the next full moon without Will's help. And so Will begrudgingly says yes. And, of course, Will's wife is like, fuck you, Jack. Really? Did you have to pull him into this? Mm-hmm. Like, he was out. And then you pull him back in. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> I've never even seen that movie, but I know that line. The Godfather Part 3. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. So Will goes to the scene of one of the crimes. And we watch it th- at first through the flashlight, which I love. I love that they did that because it's showing you. He is the killer, basically. Yeah, he's putting himself yeah. in the killer's shoes. I think just something as small and simple as that can tell you so much about a character. And I love that they did it. So he's looking around just trying to get a feel for what happened that night Seeing the blood on the walls, um, looking at all the different things that are in the house, and trying to understand who the who the victims were and who the killer is. And through this process, we're not going to get too much deeper in this. Through this process, he realizes that the tooth fairy must have taken off his gloves at some point. There's talcum powder on the body, but no talcum powder anywhere in the house, so... What is it from? He deduces that it's from the gloves that the man felt compelled to touch his victims, but removed the fingerprints. But did he remove all of them? And he asked, did you touch their eyes? You son of a bitch. He says, <laughs> you, you son of a her, bitch. You you, son of a bitch. So many times. <laughs> it is so, he's so fucking intense. God, she's lovely, isn't she? It was maddening to have to touch her with rubber gloves on, wasn't it? found talcum powder on her leg but there wasn't any talcum powder in the bathroom the talcum powder came out of a rubber glove as you pulled it off to touch her you took off your gloves to touch her didn't you didn't you you son of a bitch you touched her with your bare hands and then you put your gloves back on but while your gloves were off did you open all her eyes so that they could see you i think yes he's very intense but i think it's also the character really trying to separate himself. Right. He needs to be angry and he needs to be disgusted by these killers because once he's done 
putting himself in their shoes, he he has to like he cannot relate to them anymore. Like he needs to draw that line somewhere. That's a good point. Yeah. So why do they call him the Tooth Fairy, Chris? They call him the Tooth Fairy because they find his bite marks and he has these really weird bite marks like this. Uh, they do a cast of his teeth and they're all fucked up and sharp and weird and all crazy. So he calls in and makes sure that they get some prints, which they end up getting prints um, from the eye of one of the victims. I don't know if it was a kid or the wife or somebody. Um, because he, wife. Yeah, because he opens their eyes in order to put the glass shards in their Me- eyes. Yes, mirrors. So he he goes through the house, the murderer does, and he breaks all the mirrors. Which Will interprets as meaning he thinks he's ugly. Yes. And he doesn't want to see himself. And yet, when he puts the mirrors in their eyes, that's because he has changed in some yeah, way. Yeah, he wants to see himself in that moment, but not regularly. But through the process, he gets a thumbprint on the cornea of one of the victims. Mm-hmm. But we find out later it's not matched to anybody in the in the fingerprint system. Uh, but if they find him, then they can compare and make sure that it's the right person. Um, so, so Will says, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this on my own. Guess I better go talk to Lecter again. Right. Because despite the fact that Lecter tried to kill him, despite the fact that Lecter is a serial killer, Lecter was really good at profiling, just like Will was. Now, Lecter could put himself in the shoes of a serial killer because he was one. And that's the difference between him and Will. But he was an invaluable resource to him. Mm-hmm. Which, if you've seen Silence of the Lambs, you know Hannibal Lecter, while getting an Oscar, is only in like 10 to 15 minutes of it or something like that. He's not in very much. He's not the villain of the story. That's Buffalo Bill. It's the same thing here. He's in a lot of the story, or he's, he plays a big part, but he isn't the villain of the story. He is a he is a shadow over the story and specifically over Will. So, he's talking to Lecter and Lecter is giving him some insight and then I mean, I love this conversation that they have uh he's just like, you know, I know you're smarter than me. And he's and he's like, "Well, then how did you catch me, Will?" And he's just like, "You had disadvantages. What disadvantages were those?" You're insane. But you might be curious to see if you're smarter than the person I'm looking for. Then by implication, you think you're smarter than me since you caught me. No. I know that I'm not smarter than you. Then how did you catch me, Will? You had disadvantages. What disadvantages? You're insane. And then Lecter kind of takes that kind of as a as an insult, and then he's like, do you dream, Will? And that's when Will's just like, no, I'm not doing this. You are not getting right. into my head, and we're getting out of here. And it's then, a really great exchange. This movie, because of Thomas Harris, is full of really, really good exchanges. This one being, I think, it's a test for you. Because Lecter's like, why should I help you? And he's like, I think you want to prove that you're smarter than this guy. And Lecter's like, oh, so you got to be smarter than somebody to catch him. And you caught me, so you think you're smarter than me. And he's like, I know I'm not smarter than you. And then there's that exchange, which is really good. Mm-hmm. And it's when he's starting to leave that Hannibal's like, leave the file. I'll look at it. And I think they do a really good job of portraying Lecter as a character who enjoys this game that he plays. 
because he doesn't take any of this seriously because he doesn't give a fuck about these people. He doesn't care that he's going to kill, that the murderer is going to kill people. That that means nothing to him. What means something to him is playing this game with a man that he does respect. He likes Will. Yeah, he really does. But he also. He sees him as a thing. As a pawn. He sees all people as things. Exactly. that's, That's not anything different. But of all things. Will but he can still him. respect you, yeah, and he can mm-hmm. still like you. He's a very complex character. I absolutely I can, love Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> I can tell you why, w- when we get it into it with the next movie, I can tell you why I think Anthony Hopkins does a slightly better job at that. I think it's just a different interpretation. No, there's something specifically, before you even brought this up, where I thought that um, – even when he loses to Will Graham in an exchange where he agrees to look at the file, in Anthony Hopkins' version, he still manages to be the superior one, <laughs> even though he fucking lost the exchange. <laughs> and I think that has a lot to do with Anthony Hopkins. Brian Cox, on the other hand, is not a bad Hannibal Lecter, and he was the first Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, I think it's just – I think he plays him a little more on the crazy side. Not quite as calm, cool, and collected. He is calm, cool, and collected, but for the most part, he can also. You also see a little bit of emotion in him, which you don't with Anthony Hopkins, really. And like I said, there's just something in the way that he talks to Will. The way that he kind of moves his mouth. I can't really describe it. You really have to see it. If you he plays him a little more crazy. If you don't know who Brian Cox is. Um, he's probably, I mean, I hate to say it, but he's probably most famous for playing uh, William Stryker in the X-Men movies. He's one of three William Strikers. Uh, he's the older one from X-Men 2. He was also the old man from Trick or Treat. If you listen along with us, we did an episode on Trick or Treat, and he plays the old man in that. He's also... The principal from Rushmore. That's and, how I know him. And the captain from Super Troopers. <laughs> we talked about that briefly at the end of our last episode. <laughs> okay. So then when he's leaving the building, oh my God, this movie, like earlier I said it about the soundtrack, this movie is the epitome of the 80s. He walks out in slow motion, the music, the sunglasses, his hair. It's just, it, it's just dripping with 80s pop culture. And I absolutely love it. What happens next? I didn't take a lot of notes on this because I was just enjoying myself too much. Yeah, totally. I mean, the next thing I talk about is when he's giving the story to Freddie Lowndes. So. Yeah, so after Will leaves, Lecter arranges to have a phone call made, but he can they dial ahead of time and there are no buttons on the phone. But he manages to screw off the front panel of that phone and use a gum wrapper to make a connection between two contacts and gets a hold of an operator, gets the operator to call, I think it's the FBI or somebody else. Kids today won't know what an operator is. You gotta explain uh that, babe. (laughs) So the operator was somebody who, I mean, back then it wasn't a big deal, but there was an operator. If you dialed zero or hit the... um, the the hang upy thing on the phone. What's it called? I have no you idea. Know when you place the receiver on the on the phone, I have no idea. It hits what a little it's button. If you hit that enough times, it will call the operator. Because and- see, kids, <laughs> there you, there was a time when people 
actually sat there in front of an enormous board, switchboard, and would move things to connect your calls. We talk about this in our Black Christmas episode. That's That's right. That's a third reference to another episode so far in this one. Um, But in any case, that's not what they did in the 80s, really. What they did is they were there. They worked for the phone company, and they were there to answer questions, provide assistance, and that sort of thing. If you wanted to make a collect call or or any of that stuff, they could assist with with that. And so he's like, oh, I've lost the use of my hands. Can you get me in contact with such and such? And they do, and he talks this secretary into giving him Will Graham's home address um, because he has to send him a book that – Somebody requested or whatever like that. This is why you never trust anybody on the phone. Right. <laughs> I'll bet she has a call caddy right next to her phone. Yeah. Well, zip that little pointer right on down to the letter G. All right. The name we're looking for, last name Graham, the man the book is supposed to be sent to, a Mr. Will Graham. 3680 DeSoto Highway, Captiva, Florida. Thank you. So very much. This is how... Lecter gets Graham's address, which will be important later. We find out that Freddie Lowndes, who works for the Tadler, which is a tabloid. If you don't know what a tabloid is, think OK or <laughs> Star. Star. In style, I think. I don't is know. I don't lifestyle? know. I don't read any of them. I don't fucking know. I just see them when I'm in the grocery store line. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the ones who. I think TMZ. Yes, but for some reason, this newspaper does not focus on celebrities. It focuses well, on crime. No, that's one of the things that it covers. Um, one of the stories that it covers is Will Graham. They have a history together because while Will was in the hospital after capturing Hannibal Lecter and was knocked out, Freddie broke in to his hospital room and moved the covers and took pictures of his wound and published them in the tabloid. And so now we come to find out that he knows that Will is working with Lecter because that's salacious. And so he's reporting on that. So Freddie Lowndes becomes uh, a main character. What do we know the actor from? I recognized him. Yeah, it's um, Stephen Lang, who looks a lot younger, and he doesn't have white hair. Anyways, he's the bad guy from Avatar, (laughs) and he's the creepy blind man in Don't Breathe. Uh, He was in Tombstone as well. This is when he was young, and you will not recognize him. So it's at this time that Dr. Chilton, who runs the psychiatric ward where Lecter is being kept, who, by the way, has a real creepy all-white office where everything, every surface is stark white. There's nothing on the walls. The only thing of any color in the entire room is he has, like, succulents in white pots, and those are green. Otherwise, it's stark white, He's supposed to say something about the character. Basically, he's a sleazeball. (laughs) But he runs the prison, uh, the psychiatric prison where Lecter is being kept. And they find out that they found a note in Lecter's stuff. And that note was delivered on toilet paper to Lecter from the Tooth Fairy. Basically saying, I love you. I respect you. 
I am becoming something great, yada, yada, yada. And I guess they've been having like correspondence is basically what they learn. But we have this whole segment where Lecter doesn't know they found the note because he's been taken out of his cell while they're cleaning. And they have like an hour to do all this analysis on it. And that's where this line, you're sly, but so am I, Mm -hmm. comes from, which is another really great line. Mm -hmm. You're so sly. So am I. They find out that they're corresponding via the Tattler. And Lecter's been putting messages in the Tattler, probably the same way that he got Will Graham's home address by being able to make these outgoing calls. So they get the next issue of the Tattler before it runs, and they find the message. And it has a, a Bible code in it. And they know it's a code. Well, because it's obvious, but they know that he's not using the Bible for the code because it has like books that don't exist in the Bible. And it's going to take him time to crack it and the Tattler's going to press. And they can't risk not publishing it because then... Lecter will know. Mm -hmm. And so Will Graham says, run it. We'll have to catch him another way. We have to hope that breaking this code will allow us to listen into their conversation. And... We're just going to have to take the risk. And if we're wrong, we're all going to feel really bad about it. We later find out when they crack the code, what he was giving him was Will's home address. Saying they know. Kill Save them yourself, all. kill them all. Now, I, I'm just going to put in a little thing here about the books. So in the book, it's really fascinating. You get a lot of it from Dollar Hyde's perspective. And he he thinks to himself, he, he's ta- he's writing this letter that's just talking about how great Hannibal Lecter is, but then he's also thinking to himself how he wants to, I believe it's sit on him when he becomes the dragon, like he wants to crush him to death. So it's really fascinating to me that he wants to do, like, he, he loves this guy, but he also wants to kill him. Um, and I think that just shows you that serial killers don't really have, the way their brains work just don't make sense to normal people. And in addition, when he gets that letter from Hannibal, it makes him angry. Because he's like, how dare he think that I'm a coward? I don't need to fear police. I'm better than the police. And they take that out of both this and the other version. And I think that's interesting that they did that. Mm -hmm. So they decide that they need to put a message in the Tattler, basically. It's like a sting operation. They know that he's going to come after Will, so they need to really entice him. They need to make sure he knows where Will is, and they need to make him angry enough to slip up. So they put a fake story in the Tattler about how he's probably a homosexual and- Molested the boys. Molested boys. Yeah, the, the children of these families, and- And he's a bottom feeder and all yeah, this stuff. Uh, just to make him really angry, because this is a proud individual. He's molested all of his male victims, and maybe impotent with members of the opposite sex. Our forensic psychologists have projected, though I'm not sure, that he may have had sexual relations with his mother. (laughs) And Freddy insists on taking the picture with him because Freddy is a fame hound. And they run the story. And everyone's converging on Will. And he's like wearing a bulletproof vest and there's snipers everywhere. 
and he's passing somebody who's like running at him, right? <laughs> and when he catches him, he like, hi-ya, judo flip. <laughs> he flips him over onto like a car or whatever. And the dude's like, what the fuck, man? No, he, he takes out his money. Take it. Yeah, take, take my it. wall. Just take the money. <laughs> and then like all these cops swarm the guy and Will's all pissed and he storms off. And the guy's like, what are you doing? Are you going to arrest that guy? <laughs> he just tried to rob me. <laughs> Which is really cute. But Tooth Fairy isn't there. Tooth Fairy does not go after Will. He goes after Lowndes for so writing the one who wrote it. lies about him mm-hmm. and publishing those lies. And so he kidnaps Lowndes in the garage of the Tattler and takes him back to his apartment. And this is, I think, where we reveal that he thinks he is becoming this red dragon where the book is named after, the second movie is named after it. Yeah, this it's, is the first time we even see Dollar Hyde. Right. He's like almost almost an hour into the movie before we his character even makes an appearance a couple minutes after that before you see his face. Mm-hmm. Um, they wait until this moment when he interacts with our main plot line before we ever actually see his character. And again, he's played by Tom Noonan. And this is where we learn he thinks he's becoming this red dragon, which is based off a painting by Blake William Blake. He has actually a series of the Great Red Dragon paintings, and I'll get into that when we talk about our next movie. And he's showing him, he's showing Freddy these paintings, and he's showing Freddy the victims, and he's talking him through this process. And it's a really great moment where Freddy's like, I haven't seen you yet. You can just let me go. I'll do whatever you want. And the guy's like, open your eyes. He's like, I don't want to open my eyes, you know? (laughs) If you don't, I'll staple them open. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty great. I'll staple your eyelids to your forehead or whatever it is that he says. And he forces Lowndes to tape record a statement. Well, I think we should also talk about the fact that it's pretty gruesome showing the pictures of the people with the mirrors in their eyes. Yeah. It looks very realistic. It does. And it's, it's creepy to look at. Also, I'd like to mention here, so this is the, like we said, this is the first time you see him. And you get to see that he's got a um, a scar on his mouth. He was born with a cleft palate. But honestly, that's about the most insight we get into him as a character. In, in this movie, yeah. They don't go into any of his history. And we'll talk about that when we get to Red Dragon. But you're right. We get like nothing about his past. So, But my point is, this movie, I think, really wanted you to hate Dollar Hyde. Yeah. This no movie, sympathy for this guy. Yeah, this movie None. did not want you to like him in any way, f- to think of him as a human being in any way. They just wanted you to see him as a monster, as a crazy, evil monster. And I think that kind of detracts from the story because it's easy to just say, oh, he's the bad guy. Well, just wait until Ray Fiennes plays him in the next movie. I know. I'm just saying, like, they make it a little too easy on You're the right. audience. You're right. Just- well, I think they knew that what what they really had on their hands was Hannibal Lecter. I think they knew even back then that he was like the star villain, even though he's not the killer we're going after in this story. So he makes him tape record this statement and it is like heart wrenching. 
I have had a great privilege. I have seen with wonder and awe the strength of the red dragon. All I wrote about him were lies. Will Graham made me write them to pull him into a trap in Washington, District of Columbia. Will Graham, you will learn from my own lips how much you have to dread because I was forced to lie. He will be more merciful to me than to you. You will lie awake in fear of what the red dragon will do. I will be a testament to the truth of this. <laughs> Freddie know, like he's scared for his life. And as well he should be, because instead of being let go, freeing him like Dollar Hyde promises, mm-hmm. I don't think we've, we've said his name and I don't think we've really gotten into it. Dollar Hyde is the Tooth Fairy, is the Great Red Dragon. And... He does free him. He frees him of his terrestrial body by strapping him into a wheelchair and lighting his him on fire and rolling him down into the parking structure where he got him from. Done very well. Yeah. Um, but here's another thing. No explanation why he's in a wheelchair. No explanation of why he has the fucked up teeth. Like they don't they don't talk about any of that. Right. So yeah. it's interesting that they kept those details, but chose not to maybe to create intrigue. But they don't really focus on the like really the whole teeth marks thing. It, it, they use it as the reason why they call him the Tooth Fairy, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. Right. They don't even mention why he has a wheelchair. They don't mention any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. They barely talk about him. Just like oh, he thinks he's becoming the Great Red Dragon. That's all you need to know. We're not going to talk about it anymore. Like. They, you're right. They really don't go into his character. This at all. movie really wants you to focus on Will Graham, which is good. I love the character of Will Graham. Yeah. And I think the guy does a really good job with him. Yeah. The actor. He's super intense. He's very intense. Didn't you, you son of a bitch? You watched him all goddamn day long. But it goes along with this sort of like 80s neon noir yes. thing. Yes. And plus. That's kind of the way Will Graham is. He has to be really intense. Yeah. So this is when Graham is actually told that they found out where the dude is living. It's a little bit later they, that he published Will's address. And he rushes home to save his family. And, of course, his, his wife's freaked out and the kid's really worried. The kid, like, kind of stonewalls him a little bit. He's kind of pissed at him. And so he takes him on a, on a trip to the market. And they have this conversation in the cereal aisle. And it's this conversation about, like, what's happening? Why did we need to leave home? Are you going to kill this guy, Dad? And it's this really great conversation that he has with his son. Yeah, he treats him like an adult. Right. Totally. He's like, listen, my kid's really upset because he's really afraid and he doesn't know why and he doesn't know what's going on transparency is important here. Yeah. And treat him like he's an adult. Yeah, I thought that that was really, it was a great scene. Mm -hmm. So this is also when we get the storyline of Dollarhide, Francis Dollarhide is his full name, and Reba, who is a blind worker at his place of business. She works in the dark room because of course she does. She's blind. Doesn't Right, that's what I'm saying. And... Francis, do they even say what he does here? Yeah, but I don't remember what they say. It's unimportant, really. It is. What you need to know is that he works with film. 
Yes. That's what you need to know. Yeah, he works he works at this um photo and video. Yeah, it's where they again, children. We used to have to uh send in our tapes and our film to get pictures and videos. Yeah, we had to we had no idea what the picture looked like until we <laughs> sent it in and waited at least an hour. At least. We had to physically go someplace. Yeah. Thank God those times are over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he meets her and he's kind of smitten with her and she's kind of smitten with him. Cause it's Joan the Allen. first time he can speak to a woman and not be concerned that she's just staring at his cleft lip. Yeah. And she feels compassion for him because she's blind. She knows a lot about voices and she easily recognizes that he has to work really hard to cover up any effect that his cleft palate would have like he she recognizes that he had surgery and had to go through speech therapy and she figures out that he's really worried about the way that he sounds and that's why he doesn't talk so much and she's like you really don't and they kind of bond and we don't get a whole lot more in depth to their relationship than this they go back to his place he watches well, he takes her to see the, the tiger. Oh, right. That's kind of that's that's pretty sweet. And then we see him like practically orgasming in the corner as he watches her pet this tiger. <laughs> the reason is the in the actual story, which I don't even think they go into why he has this hookup, but he went to her in the first place to get some night vision film so the zoo could photograph these nocturnal animals, and so he has contacts at the zoo. And he hooks this up for her because she's the one who got them this film. It's her film. They let her in when they're going to operate on this tiger's tooth. And so this tiger is very sedated and she gets to pet the tiger. And it's like super fucking sexual. <laughs> then they go back to his place. He watches footage of a family. That he plans, that he to, plans kill. to kill while she's like getting all sexy with him. And then they have a sex scene and the music during that love scene. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's so 80s and intense. <laughs> Deep as the river. This is also where we learn how he's choosing his victims. Yes, because he has access to all these videos, he he's finds able these to families. The families. Yeah. He finds these families with big yards. He sees their home footage so he can see ways of ingress. Yeah, he gets to know the ins and the outs of their house based on these videos that yeah. they send in. And so that's why he's studying a new video when they, the two of them end up having sex. He gets kind of pissed off at her because when he wakes up, she goes off on her own. And she doesn't see all the shit that he has in his house that's all weird and creepy, like the dentures and all of this stuff because she's blind. 
but he's a little intense with her and she ends up getting a ride home from this weirdo guy that they work with and he f- he's following her because he's become obsessed with her basically and it, even though it's not what's happening in actuality we see his fantasy of her kissing him goodnight and they're making out on her porch when this guy is all he's doing is just walking her to her door after dropping her off so the only th- he does the only thing he can do and he kills that guy and kidnaps reba mm-hmm. and takes her away this is around the time that will is figuring this is around the time that will is figuring all this stuff out right he's figuring out oh they got the stuff from the same place or they they got their home movies from the same company that's how he found out how to get in that's why he he brought uh bolt cutters but never used them because they had changed their locks in between the time they made the film and he actually did the deed. And so he figures all this stuff out and he's able to figure out which of these employees is the guy and it's Dollar Hyde. So the rest of this encounter is kind of a mess. The police, including Will Graham, go to Dollar Hyde's residence. He is threatening and about to kill Reba and she's freaking out. And Will Graham comes bursting through a window because he's about to kill her. And there's shots fired. They struggle. Dollar Hyde gets injured and they go to shoot each other. Dollar Hyde misses. Will doesn't. And he kills Dollar Hyde. He has to shoot him a bunch of times. Yeah. Over and over and over again. Like, it's it's kind of silly how many times he has to shoot him before Dollar Hyde goes down. Totally. And then, oh, Crawford is shot in the process of this, but he ends up surviving. That's Will's boss, effectively, the guy who roped him into this. And then he retires again and goes back to his family. Will does. And we get this awful song about feeling your heartbeat. He wears terrible shorts, and they're all in pastel blue, white, and yellow, and then there's a freeze frame. so fucking 80s. It is very 80s. A lot of stuff is filmed at sunset, so you got the oranges and purples and stuff like that. It is so fucking 80s. It has the, you know, how Blade Runner is, like, cyberpunk future noir. This is... 80s Miami neon noir. It's so great. (laughs) I love how cheesy it is. All right. But that is effectively the story of 1988's Manhunter, Kelsey, lightning round. I love in the beginning when Jack Crawford and Will Graham are sitting on the beach and they're discussing what's going on. And Will Graham's wife, Molly, walks by and Jack Crawford says, hey, Molly. And she just kind of looks at him and walks by. I love that. Like, fuck you, you're an asshole, get off my porch kind of thing. Yeah. There's a reason why this movie isn't called Red Dragon when the source material is. Apparently, a couple years earlier, Year of the Dragon came out and it failed in the box office. And so they took Dragon out of the title and just called it Manhunter. They had no idea 
the potential for a franchise, which it eventually became. When Will Graham first goes off from the family, it's like his first night away, he calls and she's like asleep. So she answers the phone and he's just like, I love you. Go back to sleep. And I'm like, what is this? I just called <laughs> to, to say, say I, I love you. <laughs> like, is that what they're, they're going for? Like, why did he have to call if she's was, she was going to tell her to go back to bed? There's a man who is named Frankie Faison who plays a character called Lieutenant Fisk in this movie. And that will become important when we watch Red Dragon. I love the elaborate detective story. I love when he's figuring things out, the way the process of him putting things together. I love all of that. I mean, I I said this last week with Sleepy Hollow. I love Sherlock Holmes. I love getting a, a glimpse into how the, these detectives put things together and think about things. Yeah, detective stories are great. And when you can make that a violent thriller – and it falls into the header of horror, I get really excited because then we can talk about it on this show. After he does, after Will Graham gives the fake story to Freddie Lowndes and his family is in hiding, he goes to see his family. He's talking to his wife and she says the weirdest line. She says, this is too good to relive. Time is luck. The fuck does that mean? That... <laughs> It's funny that you bring this up. That's a Michael Mann thing. Okay. It's in a couple of his movies. But what does it mean? It sounds profound. It means nothing. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I guess the more time you're given, the more chance you have to, the more chance there is for something to occur. I don't know. I actually wrote here, the story is too focused on Graham. They wait far too long to get into Dollar Hyde, which ties back into our original point about how they really don't get into Dollar Hyde at all. You don't even see his tattoo. They don't go into why the Red Dragon's important. They don't go into why he's the Tooth Fairy. They don't go into why he is the way he is. Like, none of that. And they focus a lot on Will. And I just don't think that he's interesting enough in this movie. I disagree. That. I think they did a great job with Will. I think they did a great job with Lecter. I think it was enough. My bitter standpoint is more about the TV show with with Francis Dollarhide. Because Red Dragon, oh, here's the thing. Man, they rushed through it. Yeah, so here's the thing. We're going to talk about Red Dragon in a moment. And I love Red Dragon. It has a lot of problems, but I still love it. But it was a chance to learn more about this character, Francis Dollarhide. So Red Dragon spends a little more time getting to know the character of Francis Dollarhide. Now, when I first saw that movie, I was like, damn, that was so good. And I love that character, and I, blah, 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 right? So then I read the book. And I'm like, oh, there's even more. He's such an interesting character. Then they make a TV show, and every season, they've got a bunch of um, killers of the week or whatever, but they focus on one serial killer throughout the uh, entire the season. season. I was super excited for the third season because it was going to be about Red Dragon, but apparently they got word that they were going to they were going to be shut down after their third season, so they decided to combine Hannibal Rising which is absolutely the worst of the series, 
with Red Dragon, the best of the series. They decided to put them together in one season. Didn't they do Sons of the Lambs as well? That's second season. Oh, is it the second season? Mm-hmm. Okay. They they don't have Clary Starling. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. but anyway, so they put them together into one season and we get practically nothing about Francis right. Tellerhide. Which is like what we love about the character and what we love about the show. They're together finally Mm -hmm. and they fuck it up. Real bad. Anyway, I wrote here, I love a patient hand in filmography. And the cinematographer is Dante Spinotti. That's going to be important a little bit later. We'll talk about him a little bit later in the episode. But... It's very patient, and especially with a noir, especially with a noir film, you have to be really patient because you got to drag out that atmosphere and really let your audience soak it up. And I thought that Spinotti does a fantastic job as filmographer in this movie, and I wrote it down while I was watching it. That's it for me. I just have a few more things. When... Dollar Hyde dies. He falls to the ground on his back with his arms kind of outstretched. Not Jesus-like, but just like his arms are kind of out a little bit to the side. And the blood is spilling out his back, and it forms like these small red wings. Really? Yeah. I didn't see that. I mean, they're not like distinct, but that's the way it comes out from behind him. It's not like a big pool of blood. It's like two wings coming out from the side. Interesting. Um. And there's a really great line that I like from Hannibal Lecter in this. Will says, I'm sick of you, Lecter. If you've got something to say, say it. And Lecter says, I want to help you, Will. You'd be more comfortable if you relaxed with yourself. We don't invent our natures. They're issued to us with our lungs and pancreas and everything else. Why fight it? I'm sick of you crazy sons of bitches, Lecter. You got something to say, say it. Be more comfortable if you relax with yourself. We don't invent our natures. They're issued to us along with our lungs and pancreas and everything else. Why fight it? I think that's really interesting because what Hannibal is saying is I didn't decide to be a serial killer. It's part of my nature. I decided to embrace my nature, and I'm much happier for it. Yes, I'm in prison right now, but I'm very calm and accepting of who I am. I feel good about myself (laughs) because I've accepted it. Meanwhile, Will Graham, on the other hand, represents that, yes, these natures are assigned to us. We don't choose these natures, but we do choose what we do with them, whether or not we accept them. And Will doesn't. Where Will gets into trouble is he tries to tap into his nature in order to accomplish good deeds, and he does save people's lives, but it kind of ruins his life in the process. But he does a really good job of separating himself from his nature, which is why your point about how aggressive and angry he gets whenever he is really tapped into a killer's point of view He's doing that to keep that separation there. I thought it was really interesting. Now, I should clarify, listen, I am not suggesting that you separate yourself from your nature. Uh, I'm just saying that if that nature is to harm others, then yes, you definitely should. And you should get help. You should seek help. If you want to hurt other people, go talk to a therapist. Yes. And don't hurt people. (laughs) Don't. How about you don't do that? (laughs) Kelsey. Yeah. What do you think this movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? 
89. 94. Nice. No actual written consensus, but 94% and it's over 30 some odd reviews. A lot of people really like this movie and it walks away with a really good score. What would you give it though? I'd probably give it a 90. Do you think it's just slightly overrated? Slightly. It's, as I said at the very beginning, it's long and slow. Yeah. I'm totally fine with that. That's the thing. That's something people say about Blade Runner and I fucking love that movie. Right. I mean, I can really love and appreciate a movie like this, which I do, but I am very much aware that, wow, I've been sitting here for two hours, <laughs> you know, like, and And when you think very, about that, it's a sign. Yes. And it's very rare, but it does happen. Sometimes I can watch a movie two and a half hours and not even recognize it. And that is a good movie. Right. But whenever I'm sitting there like, yep. It's been a while. Like, that's a problem. That is an issue because it reminds me that I am watching a movie. It takes me out of the experience. I would probably give it an 85. Why? I think all the balls it drops. It has style out the ass and I love it for that. (laughs) That's why I give it such a good score. But there's so many opportunities they had with this movie that they didn't take advantage of. True. That I think we'll see – how successful it could have been in Red Dragon. It's funny you say that because not a lot of people like Red Dragon. Don't worry. I don't think Red Dragon is is a, you know, 100% or anything like that. <laughs> it has its own problems, but they're different problems. <laughs> but that fucking style, man. God. I, 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 I love, love, love this movie. I really, really do. But... So many things, like even when I, you know, hadn't seen it in a long time and I'm watching it this time, I'm writing down, where's Dollarhide? <laughs> Why are we focusing so much on Will and not on Dollarhide? Where is he? And then when we get him, we get practically nothing with him. They do not use Tom Noonan, who is spectacular. <clears throat> Fuck you. <laughs> He's not spectacular. He's no Ray Fiennes. No, he's not. He's no Ray Fiennes. But he did a really good job in this movie. And I think they should have given him more to work with. And I don't think the Lecter is as good, uh, which isn't to say he's bad. I think he's very good. I just don't think he's as good as Anthony Hopkins. It's not fair. It really isn't fair. It is not fair to One of the most iconic (laughs) film characters, period. Of all time. (laughs) And Brian Cox gets the original version and gets to be compared to him. Like, it's a bummer for Brian Cox. He did a great job, Mm -hmm. but not as good as Anthony Hopkins. Speaking of that, we will talk about Red Dragon. But first, slash cards, Kelsey. Yep. The Lost Boys from 1987. (laughs) Of course. Takes place in what U.S. state? When are we going to watch The Lost Boys, by the way? You fucking love that movie. I love that movie, but I thought you wouldn't have considered it a horror. Why wouldn't it be a horror? It's about vampires. And they murder people. Because it's not scary? Come on, Kelsey. You know I have a very wide definition of horror. But you don't want to use the skin I live in. <laughs> Really bothers me that you don't consider that a horror movie. I don't. It's understand. not that I don't consider it a horror movie. I mean, I see your point. 
it's less of a horror movie than the one about vampires. <laughs> I I consider Lost Boys more of a adventure teen angst movie. Yeah, but all the ways that it's different <laughs> all the ways that it's different from the Goonies <laughs> aside from age <laughs> is you know vampires murdering people and trying to kill these kids and transformations and hanging upside down from caverns and you know like it's it's a vampire movie okay we'll put it on the list i'm perfectly happy to put it on the list (laughs) anyway it takes place in california but can you say what city I know that's not the question, but he should be able to answer it since we have been there. Santa Cruz. Yes. What's the name of the city in the the movie? movie. Um, I don't remember. Santa Clara. Santa Clara. The murder capital of the world. Yes. (laughs) Filmed in Santa Cruz and we went there. Yeah. And we saw where they filmed it. We rode the roller coaster at night. It was great. It was awesome. (laughs) If you ever have a chance to go there, you should do it. Yes. It's pretty cool. It's not like blow your socks off amazing, but it's pretty cool. I loved Santa Cruz. Yeah. All right, Kelsey. Yep. What actress played Lorraine Lambert in Insidious 2010? Now, the hard part here is remembering which one's Lorraine. Thaisa Farmiga's sister, the more famous one, but I know Thaisa Farmiga because of American Horror Story. You mean Vera Farmiga? Is Is, that her name? That's her name. Yes, so Vera. No. Lorraine? Is it not? No. Damn. Not that character. Lorraine is his wife. Oh, Vera Farmiga is not in this movie. I've got the right, I've got the right character. No, you don't. Lorraine is his wife. Lorraine Warren is Vera Farmiga in The Conjuring. You asshole, you did that on purpose. No, I didn't even realize. You fucking dick. I didn't even realize. I promise you. I promise you I didn't even realize. But I am right. No, it's not the wife. Right, but in The Conjuring. It's Vera Farmiga, yes. Playing Lorraine. Lorraine Warren. Playing his wife. Yes. I fucking hate you. There's a character called Lorraine Lambert. God damn it. In Insidious. Is that the mom? The it mother-in-law? Is the mother-in-law. It is oh, his mom. I don't fucking mom. know her name. Barbara Hershey. Yeah. I don't know where that just came from. <laughs> I figured you knew who Barbara Hershey was. I Do, know I know Don't you her. know Beaches? Didn't you watch Beaches with your mom? Every woman's seen Beaches. She's in Beaches? She's the main fucking character. Uh, no, she is not the main character of Beaches. How dare you? She's the main character's friend. Oh, ugh, whatever. She's Get also. Woo! She was also the mom in Black Swan. That's right. She's Mary Magdalene in The Last Temptation of Christ. I don't fucking remember her in that movie. All I remember is <laughs> Willem Dafoe and his stupid face. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. Sorry, Willem Dafoe. You're a good actor. Sometimes. She's also in Once Upon a Time. Oh, that's right! She's the evil queen's mom. Yes. She's pretty good in that. (laughs) Fight me. I like like the original 
My first couple seasons. You'll be interested to know this. She plays the older Anne Shirley in the 2008 TV movie, Anne of Green Gables, A New Beginning. Oh, I've never heard of that. I mentioned it previously because there's an actress that was in Anne of Green Gables, and that's where you recognized her from. And I listed a a bunch of movies she was in, and she was in that movie. Mm -hmm. Anyway, moving on to 2002's Red Dragon, based on the same book by Thomas Harris, this time written for the screen by Ted Talley and directed by fuckhole extraordinaire Brett Ratner. (laughs) I think you already talked about it. The best movie he's ever made. Last week. Starring an insane, an absolutely insane cast (laughs) of Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, Ed Norton as Will Graham, Ray Fiennes as Francis Dollarhide, Harvey Keitel as Jack Crawford, Emily Watson as Reba McLean, Mary Louise Parker as Molly Graham, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Freddie Lowndes. Jesus. It's an amazing cast. (laughs) And how this movie didn't do better, I don't know. Yeah. I don't understand why so many people don't like it. I don't get it. I have an idea. It has issues. I'm not saying it is a perfect movie, but I'm surprised that it did as poorly as it did. I think, I think it's because it seems like a cash-in of the Hannibal Lecter series. It seems like it's just trying to be Silence of the Lambs again. And it's the third movie in the series to come out. It's a prequel. And it came out after Hannibal, which people hated because that one dude ate his own brains. Ray Liotta ate his own brains. Spoilers for a movie we have not done. (laughs) I probably won't do. It's famous for that. The book is way better. Yeah. I I think people had kind of run out of patience for this series at this point, which is, it's too bad. The only movie that really gets the credit it deserves in this entire franchise is Silence of the Lambs. And I had never even heard of Manhunter until I read the books, I think. Yeah. And this is way better than I think people anticipate it being. Should people watch it? For the cast alone. And Ray Fiennes does such an amazing job. And I love it. I actually think that its biggest issue is is a little choppy. Well, we'll get into it when we talk about the movie, but I have problems with it as well. I also, however, didn't mention music by Danny Elfman. (laughs) Yeah, we we saw that. We were like, really? (laughs) (laughs) This is funny after the last episode. You don't get the la 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 la. It's not it's not Tim Burton Danny Elfman. <laughs> it's the every other soundtrack that he does. It's not Tim Burton Danny Elfman. Anyway, yes or no, up or down, should people see this movie? Yes. All right. But I say that with trepidation. I think so too. You shouldn't go into it expecting it to be as good as Silence of the Lambs, but it is the second best in that franchise. So you should see it. Go ahead and do so, and when we come back, we'll talk about 2002's Red Dragon. Two families killed a month apart in their homes. This wasn't some killing frenzy. These attacks were highly organized. The victims carefully chosen. This one is going to go on and on. You want to know how he's choosing them, don't you? 
He is refining his methods. I don't think anybody knows you at all, dear. He is evolving. So it's true the lector is actually helping with your investigation. We mustn't judge too harshly, Will. Have you never felt a sudden rush of panic? Before Silence of the Lambs, before Hannibal, novelist Thomas Harris conceived of evil in its purest form. Red Dragon, rated R. Kelsey, what happens in Red Dragon? So Red Dragon follows the exact same story. It really doesn't deviate much. No, it adds more stuff in. But it doesn't change things. It just adds. There's minor things here and there where he just publishes Will's city that he lives in. And that's it. Yeah, other real minor changes like that. But otherwise, same exact plot line. So we're not going to go into it here. We're just going to go over those scenes that are new to Red Dragon. So it starts completely different. We open with Hannibal Lecter, Anthony Hopkins, sitting in a symphony. And he's obviously irritated by a flutist. Flautist. Is it really? It's flautist, yeah. He uh, isn't hitting his notes as well as he, as Anthony Hopkins would like him to. Then we cut to a dinner party, which is in the story. It's in the original story. He would do this. Yeah. At this point, you should know Hannibal the Cannibal. He would kill people and then eat them. But not just eat them. He put them into delicacies, into yeah. delicious meals, not just, you know, like... Uh-huh. Fry him up, need him. <laughs> so he ha- hosts a dinner party for the board of the symphony. And they're all talking about how amazing it is. And one chick is like, oh, we really shouldn't be enjoying this when one of our members is missing. And one guy is just like, are we really that sad? Can I admit something awful? I'm like, well, fuck you. You deserve what you're getting right now to eat. Yeah. Um, um, basically... This the, amuse-bouche <laughs> that Hannibal is serving is, is the flautist. Yeah. And it's so great because one of the ladies goes, you know, like, what is this? And he goes, I'm afraid if I told you, you wouldn't even try it. Yeah. And so it's that night when Hannibal's cleaning up that Will shows up at his doorstep kind of in a panic. Not really a panic, but he's very excited. And he thinks he's figured something out about the Chesapeake Ripper, which is he's not keeping body parts as a souvenir, which is what they kind of originally thought. Um, He's taking organs, and he names the organs. These are all things that are used in cooking. These are all organs that people cook with in animals. I think he's eating them. And he's like, ah, man, I think I had it. Yeah, he's because like, because Lecter like grills him a little bit and is like, "Really? Uh, we can talk about it later." And let's talk about it in the morning. Yeah, and he's like, "But I'm so close." And he's like, "You'll figure it out." Now I'm sorry to think that I might no longer enjoy your full confidence. No, no, I didn't. I didn't say that. I didn't. I don't. I don't know what I'm saying. I. I'm very, very tired. I. I almost had it. It'll come to you. 
Yeah. (laughs) Again, Hannibal loves the game. Yeah, he really does. And he literally calls it a game in this scene. Yeah, and he he loves... The game was always going to end. Yes, and he loves to watch will squirm and figure things out and he knows that will's gonna figure it out he knew it was only a matter of time he thinks will's really smart yes like all games must come to an end yes and it's great edward norton oh oh i love edward norton he's my favorite actor and i have an enormous crush on that man (laughs) even though apparently he's a total jerk (sighs) as far as i know nothing awful has come out about him like mistreating women or anything like that but apparently he's He's just difficult to work with right he he puts a writer in all of his contracts that says he gets the right to (sighs) rewrite the script if he wants to for any movies that he's in it's why he's not the hulk in the avengers movies okay he's outstanding so fuck it Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he has stupid blonde hair in this movie. and He, ha- he has blonde hair because he lives at the beach. Ugh. Literally, that's the reason why. I don't care. I don't like it's, it. It's supposed to look sun bleached. So he's looking through this book. Oh, wait. No, but before we get there, mm-hmm. he's Hannibal's sitting there and he's like, let's just talk in the morning, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, he's thinking out loud. He's saying his thoughts out loud. And he goes, I'm actually really surprised you didn't catch on to it. I would have thought you would have figured that out before me. <laughs> yeah. And it's so great. Yeah, and that's that's when he's like, oh, man, I almost had it. Like, <laughs> that moment. It's like, yeah, you almost did have it. <laughs> and Lecter's like, you just go home, get some rest. We'll talk about this in the morning. I'll go get your coat. It won't be more than a tick. And, you know, pats him on the shoulder as he walks by. Will gets up, walks over to the wall, and sees all these souvenirs from exotic cultures and stuff like that that Lecter has. And he has a book that talks about, like, delicacies and things like that and opens it up and it talks about the liver or some body part, some organ, and it has written in there... Sweetbreads. Sweetbreads. Yeah. And that's when Will figures out, oh, my God, this is a cookbook. Like, he, he, he's, he's the one who's cooking body parts and eating them. And just as he's about to whirl around and pull his gun on him, he gets stabbed with a letter opener or something by Lecter right in the gut. And Lecter is walking him through this process. And this is when he says all games must come to an end. And listen, I don't want this to be painful for you. Like it had to end and it was going to end with me on top. You're going to die. I don't want this to be painful for you. You're in shock right now. And then you're going to feel drowsy. Just let it happen and you'll die peacefully. Don't move. You're in shock now. I don't want you to feel any pain. In a moment, you'll begin to be lightheaded then drowsy. Don't resist. It's so gentle, like slipping into a warm bath. I regret it came to this world, but every game must have its ending. Will doesn't let it happen because in in falling over, he knocks over this quiver full of arrows and he grabs the arrows and stabs him in the same exact place (laughs) that Will just got stabbed in with just a grip of arrows. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when he's, you know, falling back over, Will Will shoots shoots him him several times, including in the shoulder and the chest, not killing him, but almost mortally wounding him. 
There is a line here that really irks me, gets me really upset. Yeah. When he's watching, when he thinks he's watching Will die, Hannibal Lecter says, I think I'll eat your heart because he's so brave and has courage Yeah, whatever. (laughs) And that really upsets me because that's not who Hannibal is as a character. Yeah. We'll get to it eventually in... Signs of the Lambs. Signs of the Lambs. Clary says he wouldn't eat me. He would think that rude. Yeah. He has he so much him. respect and love for Will. He wouldn't eat him. He yeah. would not eat him. So that pissed me off. And that's kind of the issue with Hannibal and Red Dragon is that they were having a little too much fun with Hannibal as a character. So according to Hopkins, he felt like Hannibal became too much of a lovable anti-hero. People liked him too much. And so he wanted to make more villainous in this. Yeah. So then we get a credit scene, and it's uh, filled with pictures and newspaper clippings that kind of tell the story of what happens. And it's exactly what happened before. It's, it's seven. It really, 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 really wants to be seven. <laughs> like, desperately bad wants to be seven. And I am sorry, Brett Ratner. You are no David Fincher. Period. End of issue. This is the closest you will get to the sun, Icarus. After this, your wings shall melt. And you shall fall to earth and drown in the ocean. You're an awful human being and you're a bad director. And I fucking hate you. Anyway, it really wants to be seven. Except... It does tell a story. It tells a story basically about everything that happens. It fills us in a little bit more on who Lecter is, how he's the Chesapeake Ripper, um, what happens to Will Graham when he almost dies. He goes to a psychiatric ward. We see Freddie Lowndes' name. Yeah, we see Freddie Lowndes' name. And this is all in the notebooks. This is why it's very similar to Seven. But like Kelsey pointed out to me, it is in the books. It's Dollarhide's notebook. He's making a scrapbook full of news clippings and stuff, and he is obsessed, kind of, with Lecter. Mm -hmm. And so he cuts out all these news clippings of Lecter, which is why he then becomes obsessed with Will Graham when he finds out through Lowndes posting those stories that Will is on his case. He's like, oh, the guy who caught Lecter is after me now. Interesting. <laughs> uh, it's great. One of the one of the clippings. Um, the title says whatever the chick's name was who said earlier, "What is this food?" If I told you, you wouldn't eat it. It says she fainted in court. Yes. <laughs> when it came out that she uh-huh. ate a human being. <laughs> That's really really good. Okay, so they do a little bit of um, an homage to Manhunter. Um, we see the flashlight showing us through the house yeah. with Edward Norton when he goes to investigate. Yes. There's also a difference with the Red Dragon. I mentioned in the bit about Manhunter that I talk a little bit more about Red Dra- the Great Red Dragon. That's because William Blake painted a series of paintings. It's the Great Red Dragon series. And two paintings have very, very similar names. One is the Great Red Dragon and the Woman Clothed in the Sun. Which is the one that he focused on in the book and the one that they focus on in the movie. Maybe. The other one is the Great Red Dragon 
and the woman clothed with the sun. Oh, are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. With and in are the only differences in those titles. Now, the difference is, is that in Manhunter, they use one, and it's the dragon at the top kind of pointed downwards over a woman at the bottom of the painting. In Red Dragon, it's the other one that they use that's tattooed on Dollarhide's back, and we get to see the tattoo, which is so awesome, um, cool. where you see the back of the red dragon. And it's more because they focus more in this movie about him becoming the red dragon and about what that means and about how that makes him feel like he is a god. The painting focuses on the red dragon and not the interplay between him and the woman. The woman is at the bottom of this painting with the dragon's tail wrapped around her. Um, but she's just at the very bottom of the painting. The painting is really focused on the dragon. Which, unlike any other dragon that you know of in the William Blake paintings, is humanoid. Mm -hmm. Which I think lends more to why he thinks he can become the Great Red Dragon. And we do get that insight when Will speaks to some police officers and others where, you know, he says he'll keep doing this, he'll never stop. And then somebody in the audience goes, why? And Will says, because it makes him a god. Would you? And in the first, and in a Manhunter, it's Lecter that says that. Yeah. It makes him feel like a god. Yeah. So I thought that that was, uh, that was pretty interesting about how there are two William Blake paintings and these movies use different ones. <laughs> I, yeah, I had no idea. So I don't know. I don't know which one they talk about in the book because all I remember was woman clothed son because I didn't know I had to pay attention to in or with. So this <laughs> is the best part. In Thomas Harris's book, he uses the title The Great Red Dragon and the Woman Clothed with the Sun. That's the title used in the book. However, he describes the painting and he describes the great red dragon and the woman clothed in the sun. Oh, my God. So he mixes them up okay. in the book. And then the movies use either one. <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting. That is interesting. So then we get Freddie Lowndes, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Sad, sad day. Yeah. He was such a great actor. He really was. He had his demons, though. Yeah, but he was awesome in this. He's, he was awesome in fucking everything he was in. So yeah. no surprise there. Apparently, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but Anthony Hopkins, he didn't have any scenes with him, but he still showed up on the set at least once when they were filming because he wanted to see him act. Anthony Hopkins? Anthony Hopkins wanted to see Philip Seymour Hoffman act. What? Yeah. When you said that, I thought you meant Anthony Hopkins. He wanted to come see him. No. Holy crap. Yeah. That is. Again, it may be apocryphal, but that's what I read. Yeah, well, Anthony Hopkins should be ashamed of himself, so who cares? Why should Anthony Hopkins be ashamed of himself? He's in The Wolfman. Oh, right. <laughs> so maybe he should have been taking notes from Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's the best part of The Wolfman. Is he, though? Is he? Yes. No, he's not. It's comparative. Emily Blunt is the oh, best you're part right. of the movie. You're right, but they don't do anything with her. Anyway, so again, he goes to see Hannibal Lecter. And it's really interesting because the way that they show him walking in is extremely like the shot in Silence of the Lambs when Clarice walks in. 
Yeah. But instead of having him standing up and waiting for her, he is laying down and facing away from Edward Norton when he yeah. comes in. Mm-hmm. We get to find out a little bit more about how the Tooth Fairy commits his crimes. We find out that he is AB positive or something like that. In the beginning, Harvey Keitel tells Will. And he has this awesome line that we didn't get in the original. We typed him with semen and saliva from the scene. He's a secretor. We typed him from semen and saliva. He's a secretor. In Manhunter, we have no idea that there's anything really sexual going on. No, they talk about how he molested the women and how he had to take off his gloves to touch her. Right, but so. we didn't know that his semen was on. Was right, on. yeah, it, they didn't they go into his, that detail. <laughs> they, get his, they get his saliva. That's how they type his blood. They do get his saliva. But so he's talking to Hannibal Lecter in the prison, and there's a lot of great lines here. I'm not going to go into every single one of them, but some of my favorites were he's talking to Hannibal Lecter, and he's and and Lecter's like talking about you know why do you need me like blah blah blah, and he's just like. I got lucky when I got you. And Anthony Hopkins says, I don't think you believed that. Yeah. And, it's, and just, it's it's a little twist on the same interaction. Do you know how you did it? I got lucky. I don't think you believe that. And it's so great because Anthony Hopkins, he seems more interested in Will than the other guy did. In fact, there's a line earlier when he's about, when, right before he tries to kill Edward Norton in the, in the first scene, and he says, I'd love to have you on my couch. Right. You know, yeah, like, uh-huh. he's really intrigued by him and interested in what's going on in that head of his. Which is which is one of the great things about the Hannibal TV show. Yes. It's all, it is all about the relationship between Hannibal and Will Graham. That entire show is, like, you don't even need to write slash fiction about the two of them. The show does it for you. (laughs) So good. It is really, really good. This is also the scene where I wrote down, even when he loses, he still sounds like he has the advantage because Will's about to walk away to show that he has control. He's like, fine, I don't need your help, you know? And Lecter says, you haven't threatened to take my books yet. And then he says, give me the file then, and I'll tell you what I think. You haven't threatened to take away my books yet. Give me the file then, and I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> like, he has deigned to involve himself in this. Fine, if you want my expertise that badly, I guess I'll give it to you. Right. We know what's actually happening, but that doesn't mean that that dynamic isn't there. And what's also great is Edward Norton comes in and he knows all the things he wants to play to. And in fact, Anthony Hopkins calls him out on it. He's like, you going into my intellectual vanity, you're you're not going to win by doing that. Yeah. But he does. He Uh does win with those tactics. Will wins. (laughs) But Hopkins is still superior. Mm -hmm. I love that about it. It's it it's a it's a balancing act. Mm-hmm. And more than him and Clarice, because in Silence of the Lambs, Clarice is very much a rookie who has never dealt with anything like this before. She is very much out of her depth. Which is why he takes such a liking to her, because she she's not afraid. She's brave, yeah. right? She's terrified. But 
She's brave. She's courageous. And he really likes that about her. But she is so not his equal. Not even close. Mm -hmm. But he kind of takes a shine to her. And this, Will is close to his equal. I think the only reason that Hannibal thinks he's better than Will is because Will hasn't succumbed to his nature. And I saved this for this one. um, But it has to do with both. So, in both movies... Lecter has this great line where he says something. I'll get to that in a minute. He says something. And Will Graham goes, oh, that's interesting. And Lecter says... No, it isn't. You already thought of it. Mm-hmm. But they each do a different clue, which I find fascinating. Yeah, in the in the original, it's... He tells him about going out into the moonlight and how blood looks black. Yeah, so Lecter mentions that, have you considered the yards? And Will says, yeah, they're big backyards, both of them. And he's like, well, if this guy thinks he has a relationship with the moon, like we said earlier, they always occur on a full moon. Then he'd probably go outside to look at it. He'd be covered in blood. It looks quite black. He has that whole line. And then he says he'd probably be nude and covered with blood and he'd probably need privacy. And then Will says, that's interesting. And he says, no, it's not. You've thought of it before. And there's a very similar exchange in Red Dragon where Lecter is pointing out that, have you thought about the fact that he's disfigured or thinks he's disfigured? And Will says, yeah, I thought of that possibility and then he says yeah because all the the mirrors were shattered even the more than he needed to get the pieces he needed but he puts the mirrors in his eyes and he wants to see himself then and that's when will says that's interesting and lecter says no it's not you thought of it before if this pilgrim imagines he has a relationship with the moon he might go outside to look at it have you ever seen blood on the moonlight well it appears quite black if one were nude, it would be better to have privacy for this sort of thing. That's interesting. No, it's not. You thought of it before. I considered it. Have you considered the possibility that he is disfigured, or that he may believe he is disfigured? In the mirrors. Yes. You notice he smashes all the mirrors in the houses, not just enough to get the pieces he wants. Of course, those shards in their eyes, so he can see himself there. That's interesting. That's not interesting. You thought of that before. I had considered it. And it's really great because they both have the same line. It's about different clues. And it's it's a really great example of the differences between the two. In these exchanges, a lot of the lines are the exact same. And you can really see a good comparison between the two lectors. Yeah, I, I just, I loved that. I I think it really shows in those minor details that these people really respected their source material. Yeah, they thought about it. Mm-hmm. We get a lot more about Dollarhide, so we should probably talk about that. His grandmother, Ellen Burstyn, who is... We never see her. She's uncredited. We only hear her voice. Yeah, uh, but she has that amazing voice. (laughs) We hear her while he's working out. We hear her voice, and she's scolding him for wetting the bed. And she's really awful to him, and he's mumbling to himself to her about... You know, while he's doing bench presses or whatever, like it's like his motivation, mm-hmm. you know, and so we get a little bit more of that backstory and it becomes really important later. Yeah. So we learn that she was abusive. 
She was a horrible grandmother. Emotionally and physically. Which, again, is super interesting if you compare it to the book, because in the book, yes, she was an awful, awful woman. Terrible grandmother. Terrible mother to his mother, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And yet, there are moments where she's a loving grandmother. Yeah. Well, that's why, I mean, that's usually how most people are. (laughs) And Dollar Hyde has that same kind of dichotomy, and we really do see it here Mm -hmm. um, with the way he treats Reba. Yes. Their interaction is all, their first interaction is also a little bit different, where there's this really great line, Ralph Mandy is that other guy that Dollar Hyde kills. Um, He's in this story, too, and he has kind of a thing for her. And even when he's leaving and she's like, I don't need to ride home, and he goes, he passes Dollar Hyde and is, like, pointing to her and giving him a thumbs up and stuff like that. <laughs> like, he's kind of a sleazeball. Yeah. Um, but he does like her as a person. Yeah. And, you know, he keeps offering her help to give her a ride home and all of that. And she's like, no, I'm fine. I'm self-sufficient, you know. <laughs> um, and she says, if there's anything I hate worse than pity, it's fake pity, especially from a walking hard-on like Ralph Mandy. <laughs> And then cut to Dollarhide, and he just says, straight as can be, I have no pity. If there's anything I hate worse than pity, it's fake pity. Especially from a walking hard on like Ralph Mandy. Sorry. I have no pity. Now, from her perspective, he says it in a way like, I have no pity. Very matter-of-factly. And it can be interpreted that he means he doesn't pity her. Mm-hmm. Which is exactly what she wants. She wants respect, not pity. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it's insight. He doesn't have pity, period, mm-hmm. for anybody or anything. And so it makes him a serial killer. So it makes him a sociopath. And Ray finds does such He's a good job. He's stunning in this. He's so fucking good. And it is a shame what happened to his career. But he is so Well, he was good. recently in the Grand Budapest Hotel with That's true. By the way, Ed Norton and Harvey Keitel. That's true. And he is <laughs> he is really good there. I just I hate I hate that he played Voldemort. It is such a blemish on his career. I I compl- I one hundred percent disagree with you there. Oh, I know he does the weird, like, wrist thing with the wand and the way he holds the wand. It's all really stupid, but I think he's a great, <laughs> I think he's a great Voldemort. Anyway, he is phenomenal in this movie. He plays Dollar Hyde, because, like I said, in Manhunter, you don't care about Dollar Hyde. They give you no reason to feel for him in any way. But Ray Fiennes plays him on such... An excellent teeter-tottering line yeah. of just pure evil and, and, like, and someone that you feel like, immense pain for. Like, he's he's emotionally vulnerable when he's dollar hide, And he is intense and intimidating when he's the Tooth Fairy or the Great Red Dragon. And I think that's really cool. He has this really great line, which is in the original, too, or something to that effect where he tells Freddie Lowndes when he has him tied up, I am the dragon and you call me insane. You are privy to a great becoming, but you recognize nothing. You are an ant in the afterbirth. It is your nature to do one thing correctly. Before me, you rightly tremble. But fear is not what you owe me. 
you owe me awe. And I'm just reading that here. Thinking about his delivery of that line, like, gives me goosebumps. I am the dragon, and you call me insane. You are privy to a great becoming, and you recognize nothing. You are an ant in the afterbirth. It is in your nature to do one thing correctly. Before me, you rightly tremble. But fear is not what you owe me, Mr. Lowndes. You owe me all. Refines just, I think... Knocks it out of the park. Understood this character so well. And I think he felt for the character, and he it really shows. It shows that there is a dichotomy in this character. There's yeah. two sides to this person. It's not a split personality. Mm-hmm. He's fully aware of what he does. It's, I mean, it's a little bit split, because they go a little bit deeper into the fact that he he's becoming the Red Dragon, but when he starts to have conflict between what he wants as Dollarhide and what he wants as the Red Dragon, he wants to protect Reba as Dollarhide. He wants to consume her, basically, as the Red Dragon. He wants to change her as the Red Dragon. And once what the two characters want is in direct opposition, he fractures. Yes, that is true. Again, it's never that he's like, well, I don't know what I was doing. Right. No, no, no. He, it's not that he doesn't have any clue. It's not multiple personalities. It's more like schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And he tries to literally protect her from the dragon, even though he is the dragon. Like, it's it's really great. He does an incredible job of it. Yeah. it It's very good. And uh, the last real big change between the two movies is the ending. So in this movie, he kidnaps Reba, he kills Ralph Mandy, and he takes Ralph's body. And we don't know that. This happens off screen. And he goes through this big conflict where he's like, I want to save Reba. And he sets the place on fire. And he's like, okay, what's going to happen is I'm going to kill both of us. And that will stop the dragon. The dragon won't be able to take you. You will be preserved as you are. And then I will be free from him as well. But he can't make himself do it. She's begging with him. Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, But he does know that he needs to get out of there. (laughs) So he can't kill her. And instead, he, he puts a shotgun through Ralph's head making it seem like he killed himself and he leaves her alive. And this is normally where the other movie ended and they caught Dollarhide. This one doesn't. They think they caught Dollarhide because he committed suicide and burned his own house down and they rescued Reba. But that's not what happens. He's home with his family again and they're going to be cooking s'mores and his son <laughs> goes inside and what does he say he's like jonesing for marshmallow or something like that yes he also he also pronounces it s'mores they make s'mores s'mores yes yeah, s'mores which really bothers me <laughs> it's like you're not human are you hey it's s'mores edward norton it's not is a s'mores beautiful human being i get that it, its root is some more like <laughs> s'more i get that Anyway, we're talking about the etymology of s'more. 
And he's like, oh, what's going on? You know, and so he goes, I'll go look for him because I really want those those marshmallows and he's taking forever. And so he goes inside the house. He walks down the pier and he goes inside his house, leaves his wife there. And when he walks inside, he notices that one of the mirrors is smashed and he's like, fuck. He knows right away. And he goes to the kitchen and he grabs two knives, which is really fucking smart. One he keeps in his hand and one he puts down the back of his pants. And he goes looking for his son. And this is the time when the investigators find out like a week or two later, however long it's been been since the fire, that it's actually Ralph's body. It's not Dollarhide's body. Dollarhide is still alive. And so Harvey Keitel calls Will's house and is like, he's still alive. Get your family out of there. Will, why aren't you answering the phone? Where are you? And this is while Will's searching the house and he opens the door to one of the rooms and sure enough, there's Dollarhide with a wedge of mirror to his son's throat. And thinking quickly, Will notices that his son beat his pants in fear. And so since he knows that because he went, he looked through his notebook and everything that was in his safe, he knows that his grandmother mistreated him mentally and physically abused him, would get on him for wetting the bed and stuff like that. So he basically, invoking Ellen Bernstein, (laughs) uh, yells at his son, calls him the homosexual slur F-word, like really, really lays into his kid. Filthy little beast and I'll cut it off. Yeah. Look at you. I've never seen a child as disgusting as you. You pissed your pants? How dare you? You dirty little beast. You want me to cut it off? Is that what you want me to do, you little freak? You want me to cut it off? Do you? It's not like Dollar Hyde is like, how dare you? <laughs> but it's fucking with him. Mm-hmm. And he can't focus on, you know, what to do. And so he lunges at Will. And that's when... Dollarhide makes Will put the knife down, and that's why it's important that he has that extra knife. He tells his son to run, and they get into this fight, and he stabs him. He's like, oh, shit, hide under the bed, you know, all this stuff, and tries to save the son. Dollarhide is down, and Will's wife comes in. And she's like, what's going on? She sees all the broken glass. She starts freaking out. She comes upstairs. She heads to the door. She sees that the door's been bashed in because Dollarhide was trying to get to them. But, and he, like, disappeared. And Will's like, honey, honey, you need to get hide. You need to run away. You need to get out of here. And that's when he sees from underneath the door that Dollarhide has come out from another room and is now on the other side of Will's wife. And so he yells at her to duck. And he pops up and he just unloads into Dollarhide. And he gets shot in the process as well because Dollarhide has a gun. And they're all both really fucked up. And when his wife goes to tend to him, he's like, you got to shoot him. You have to shoot him in the head. So she grabs the gun. And there's a scene in this movie that we don't get in the original where she she he gives her target practice and he teaches her how to fire a gun and all of that. And then she fires the gun, shoots him in the head and she's freaking out and he's, he's now dead. And that's where this movie ends. Kelsey, what happens to Will Graham in the books? In the book, basically after such an incredible red dragon novel, 
I think he gets brought up in fucking Silence of the Lambs, and he gets, like, one sentence, and it just basically writes him off as he's now just a drunk wasting away in a bar somewhere. Right. Because... Which is totally understandable after what happens, after after how much his wife pleaded with him not to do this, and then it comes into their home, her son was threatened, had a, was about to get his throat cut. She had to kill a man because of what he couldn't do for his family, which is stay out of it. So it would be understandable if that's what happens to this will as well. It's a little bit of insight into the books, into what happens after the story potentially. But that's not the, the last, last scene in this movie. The last, last scene in this movie is Dr. Chilton telling Hannibal that there's a young woman from the FBI come to talk to him and she seems pretty cute or whatever. <sighs> God. It's a callback. Yes, it's a callback to Silence of the Lambs because it basically this movie leads directly into Silence of the Lambs is what they're saying. And it's just so tongue-in-cheek and cheesy. It's not clever in any way. It's like they're trying to cash in. It's like how you don't make an extended universe. Anyway, it's just so fucking cheesy. There is a scene we skipped that yeah. is in this movie that is not in Manhunter. Yeah. And it is about the painting. Oh, you're right. Oh, my God. I can't believe I forgot about this scene. So after he sleeps with Reba, he basically decides... He's going to do something about the Red Dragon. Because he can't let the Red Dragon get to her. He's in love with her. And he doesn't want anything to happen to her. So... He goes to the museum where they have this original painting, and he, he he knows the curator because they've had a lot of correspondence about it, which makes uh-huh. sense. Yeah. He would have done his research. So he's come in to finally see it in person, and he gets there, and she's they're looking at it together, and they're talking about how beautiful it is, and then he knocks the girl, woman out. And eats the painting. Yeah. Because he believes that if he eats it, he will have destroyed the dragon. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And then another woman walks in and he knocks her out. And Edward Norton, when he's talking to Jack Crawford, Jack Crawford is like, why didn't he just kill them? He goes, maybe he's trying to stop. Yeah. It's he's trying to stop for Reba. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's what I'm saying. Like, this has... So many more dimensions when it comes to Dollarhide, the actual villain of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. in, in this is in the movie that has Anthony Hopkins in his one of his most famous roles in one of the most famous characters and portrayals in movie history. They still let the movie focus on Dollarhide, whereas the other one didn't. And it really did a disservice to the character and the story in general. Yes. And that's why I didn't give it higher than I did. I gave the other one an 85%. Do you have anything for lightning round, Kelsey? A couple things. Okay, go ahead. When Edward Norton is in Anthony Hopkins' home, like Chris said, he looks at all these different things that he has on his walls. One of those things is a frame with a bunch of beetles in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's... Very similar to the moth from Silence, from Silence of, the of the Lambs. Yeah, the death's head moth, I think, is what it's called in Silence of the Lambs. We find out that the teeth were his grandmother's teeth. We didn't even say that. 
Yeah, so he has a cleft palate, and he'd had surgery on it, and so he wears dentures. But he wears his grandma's dentures. Yeah, that, that's part of it. He has multiple sets of dentures. Yeah. That's why he has teeth like that, but he doesn't. He seems normal to everyone else. Again, another thing they don't really get into in the character in Manhunter. Mm-hmm. When Edward Norton is figuring out that he's choosing them by looking at their videotapes. Yeah. There's an awesome part where he pulls out a drawer and it's filled with big, like, fat VHSs. Uh huh. My parents have one of those. They yeah, still those, have those puffy a box VHSs. With the and VHSs. yeah, uh huh. Yeah, totally. It's awesome. There's an excellent line from Anthony Hopkins, one of the last, if not the last time, that he talks to Edward Norton in the movie. He says, No one will ever be safe around you, Will. Yeah. Which also plays into the idea that. Probably one of the reasons why he went off and became an alcoholic is because he probably thinks that way. <sighs> Everyone around me gets hurt. Yeah. That's probably one of my complaints about this movie. Is that there needs to be a happy medium between Ed Norton's composure and normalcy and nobility. And William Peterson's intensity like there needs to be a happy medium between the two and i think i both of them are kind of too far to either side if i got like a little bit more of the both of them together i think i would have liked either of them a lot more i'm sorry i'm sorry are you talking about hugh dancy's performance yeah Actually, yeah, I think Hugh Dancy in the Hannibal TV show is a much better Will Graham. Mm-hmm. I, I hadn't thought about it, Another but I think you're right. Another sexy Will Graham character. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many sexy men in this world. <laughs> but yeah, so Hugh Dancy kind of does, uh, he kind of stays more on William Peterson's side. He does. He has this intensity, but he's not like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> You touched her, didn't you? Didn't you, you son of a bitch? (laughs) Didn't you, you son of a bitch? You watched them all goddamn day long. So when when Ray Fiennes wakes up and uh, Reba's walking around because she's blind or whatever, he is totally naked and we get to see him running around the house fully butt naked. Yeah, well, he's naked when he kills Freddie Lowndes, too. Yes, but it's just because he's got these... This These full back tattoo full back of the tattoo. red dragon. And his butt looks so tiny in comparison to the he rest He is of fucking it. ripped in this movie. Because he's supposed to be. Yeah. It, it's it's he, they talk about, overcompensation they, for uh-huh. his cleft palate. And they talk a lot about how strong he is. Yes. Reba has this conversation which they touch on in Manhunter, but they go in a little bit deeper here about how the women talk about him. You know, about how strong he is. They basically want me to, to tell them if you're packing downstairs um, and how you're really self-conscious about your looks, but you shouldn't be. Yes. Is it this one? He's Ray- a lot better looking than... Oh, much. Yeah. Ray Fiennes is a very good looking man. He is. And in this movie, being all bulked out. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, calm down. <laughs> um, is it this movie that she's like, Damn! She, I or is it the first one? I don't remember, but she's like, oh, you really are. Yeah, one of them. <laughs> I don't remember if it's this one or that one, but she's just like, oh, I see you are, you are doing well down there. 
<laughs> when they're walking in to look at the painting, the lady who works there says, I thought you'd look different. And he goes, and you, you can see the flash of anger on his face. Oh, yeah, because he thinks she's talking about his cleft palate. And he's like, what did you think I'd look like? Different. Like, I, I, like, what did she think? I want to know. Probably not a, not a large, bulked out, handsome man. Because that's not the type of guy who would be into this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I assume. So. I mean, he, he has a scar. Like, Joaquin Phoenix has a scar. Like, that's the scar that he has. It's not, like, really dramatic cleft palates. There are but people that have a lot worse. A child. That's why he had surgery like that. Yeah. That's why mm-hmm. he has such a problem with it, because when yeah. he was a child, all the kids made fun of him. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and towards the end, not not the very end, but when he's talking to Reba after her horrible ordeal, it's so sad. She's crying, and she's like, I should have known. I should have seen it coming, and he's just oh, like... Oh, it's this great moment, yeah. He's like, no, this has nothing to do with you. You're a wonderful person. You, How could you have known? How could anyone know? Right. He was a freak, but... It's not because you attract freaks. In fact, you brought out the best part of him. Yeah. Uh-huh. He says that to Arian. <laughs> and she's like crying. And, he, and so then he goes, um, there is nothing wrong with you besides your hair. You, you really need to get your hair fixed. And it makes her <laughs> laugh because her hair is all like nuts because she's, uh-huh. you know, it's, it's really cute. Yeah. No, it's, it's very cute. One last thing I wanted to say is that Dante Spinotti, the cinematographer, the director of photography for Manhunter, worked with Brett Ratner on Family Man. And Brett Ratner knew he worked with him before, and he knew that he worked on the original. And so he actually delayed filming the movie so he could get him as the director of photography for this movie. So Spinotti was the DP on both movies. He did a much better job on Manhunter. This, while really cool, and it's kind of stylish, it's not nearly as stylish as Manhunter. This is kind of a little bit by the numbers. It's imitation David Fincher, and you can, like, David Fincher is a fucking master. Like, you could imitate the style, but you can't imitate the skill. And while it's cool that the same DP was on both movies, and while he did do a great job on that one, not so much on this one. I think the biggest problem with this movie is that, like I said earlier, it's choppy. It it doesn't flow very well. It's not a smooth running movie. It just kind of jumps from scene to scene to scene yeah. to scene. Whereas Manhunter, and again, probably one of its problems is that it's so slow, but it at least it eases you in. It flows from scene to scene. Yeah. Whereas this movie does not do that. So that said, Kelsey, what do you think it got on Rotten Tomatoes? I just, I know this movie is universally hated, and I don't know why. It's fresh. Is it? Yeah. What does that mean? It has to be 60 or above? I think 60, yeah. I was going to guess 68. 68 is exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. Overrated or underrated? I wonder what you're going to pick. Underrated. Underrated, definitely underrated. What would you give it? If I was just going by the story and the writing. No, no, no. What's the movie? (laughs) What would you give the movie? Probably like a 77. I'd give it higher. Okay. I'd 
probably give it an 85, just like the other one. Wow. I like it a lot. I really do. I just, and a lot of that has to do with Thomas Harris's content. That's what I'm saying. If I was basing it purely on the writing, the story, and the amazing cast, I'd give a much higher score. And you can see that it is Thomas Harris's source material when you see when they do the same thing. And it's like some of the best lines in either movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you can tell he contributed a whole lot to it. And I can't take that out of the movie. I'm not going to rate it without that stuff. I have to take that into consideration. It's part of the movie. It picks up a lot of slack that Manhunter let fall to the wayside. But in the process, it's kind of boring in its style. In its style, yes. Yeah. So kind of like I wish Will Graham was an amalgamation of the two, I kind of wish that... Actually, Red Dragon was an amalgamation of Manhunter and Red Dragon. Yeah. um, I think that would be a spectacular film. Yeah, I think it mostly suffers from, like you said, lack of style. It it just feels like it was just kind of thrown together. Maybe it's the editing. There are these amazing performances. Mm -hmm. Amazing performances. Especially from Ray Fiennes. Mm -hmm. And you have Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. You got Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like, come on. These are incredible performances. And they're wrapped in a package that's like fucking newspaper. Yeah. It's it's a big disappointment. But all that actual content, what's actually in the box, the actors, the story, the lines, is really, it's a quality gift, but the wrapping paper is hideous. Mm-hmm. So... I'd I'd give it an 85 because of what is there is is spectacular. Yeah. And it it's kind of like a balancing act. When it does I, right what Manhunter did wrong and vice versa. I saw this in theaters with my mom. Yeah. When we both walked out, we absolutely loved it. And then we kept reading bad reviews and we were just like I'm telling you, I think it's a hangover from Hannibal. <laughs> and the general consensus is very short, competently made, but everything is a bit too familiar. Cuz by this time Sons of the Lambs had already come out, and people are like, oh, it's Hannibal Lecter helping an FBI agent find another killer. It's just Silence of the Lambs again. Like, well, this the book was written first. <laughs> Red Dragon was written before Silence of the Lambs. Like, but you can't you can't fault them. The movie did come out first. Silence of the Lambs did. So what are you gonna do? It's kind of a bummer. If only they had just just smush them together. You know? <laughs> yes. All right. That is 2002's Red Dragon. If you have any comments about either movie or would like to get in touch with us for any other reason, maybe to recommend another movie for us to watch, you can reach us at podcemetery.com or follow us on Twitter at podcemetery. Next week, though, Kelsey, what are we watching? Next week, I was trying to keep this as a surprise, so I didn't say it earlier, we're watching Silence of the Lambs. Yeah! Might as well. We've now watched the first one. We're moving in the second one. It's one of Chris's favorite movies, so Uh we definitely had to watch it. But it is not going to be a double feature because there is no no remake. remake. And we're not watching Hannibal because... Hannibal's garbage. Well, it's not garbage. It's not... 
It's not garbage. When I first saw it, I thought it was garbage. Then I read the book and it made me appreciate it more. Yeah. But that does not mean the movie is good. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I would recommend watch all four of these movies. Do not watch Hannibal Rising. That's what I would recommend. Yeah. Watch, watch Manhunter <laughs> and Red Dragon. Watch Silence of the Lambs. Watch Hannibal, I guess. Watch the TV show. Watch the TV show. Do not watch Hannibal Rising. TV show gets into the Hannibal Rising stuff in the third season. Just don't watch the third season. If you really want to watch it. Fuck the third season. (laughs) But, Kelsey, what's the other movie we're watching? The other movie is... I don't want to give too much away. Neither of us have seen it, but I had to read a lot about it because I wanted... Because it's from South Korea, and I wanted to make sure it was something we really wanted to watch. It is called Memoir of a Murderer. I've heard of this. I know nothing about it. I'm not going to tell you that. Okay. All right. (laughs) Get excited, folks. This has been Pod Cemetery. Until next time, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. What do we say at the end here, Kels? If one does what God does enough times, one will become as God is. I worry why should I care Huey Lewis thought it was Huey Lewis you're wrong that's literally all I remember of that movie is that part of that song <laughs> I don't think I've ever actually seen it really I saw it in the theaters that's literally the only time I saw it I've seen parts of it it's just if I'm gonna watch Oliver, I'd rather watch the musical. You wouldn't want to see a Disney version of Oliver? I didn't like what I saw. Oh snap. Yeah, I was like five when I saw it. <laughs> My parents took me to see it. <laughs> what is his name? Billy Joel. God. No. No. Fuck no. Seriously? He's also in The Men Who Stare at Goats. Yeah, nobody cares about that movie. (laughs) How about you don't do that? (laughs) They do not use Tom Noonan, who is spectacular. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) All I remember is Willem Dafoe and his stupid face. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so good. Will Will shoots him. Fuckhole extraordinaire, Brett Ratner. (laughs) This is the closest closest you will get to the sun, Icarus. After this, your wings wings shall melt. (laughs) 
shall you shall fall to earth and drown in the ocean. You're an awful human being and you're a bad director and I fucking hate you. Anyway, 